0: Welcome back to another episode of Failure at its Finest Hour. Episode twenty-seven is going to look a little different. Uh, this is just Tony here talking to you guys, uh, because me, uh, Aaron, and Chris, we all interviewed an individual that I am not going to spoil. Uh, but there's some wonderful, wonderful Antigonish history on the way here, as as well as well on this Halloween day. That uh, well, some some spooky stories as well. Um, so I'm really looking forward for you guys to, to, to hear this. It's a wonderful interview. And before we send it, before I send it, I wanted to let you know that Dylan, a member here of the podcast, is going to be absent from the podcast for a few months now because he has some military things that he has to tend to, uh, but he will be back closer to Christmas. So it's from here on out until Christmas, it will just be uh, myself, Aaron and Chris. For right now, well, let's get right into it. All right. We are now joined with a very special guest. Actually, before we even get into it, Aaron and Chris, we kind of talked about having Bruce on. I think early on when we started this podcast, we talked about, we were talking about kind of ghostly entity stories in Ontonagon, talked about the orange jogger, Aaron, over by the dump in Greenland. And I think I swear we talked about. Yeah, we got to get Bruce Johansson on. Well, we finally did. We have Bruce with us right now. Uh, So, Bruce, I I just wanted to start off by having you introduce yourself and kind of tell our listener who you are and what you've done for Ontonagon and the community for
1: however many years you've been been doing stuff.
2: Well, my name is Bruce Johansson. I originally came in here as a music teacher. I was a high school band director for um, a little better than 20 years all told i I also worked for the ontagen herald for uh 25 years i'm kind of retired from that now and trying that is i'm trying to retire from it um i was very active with the ontagen county historical society until about three years ago Uh, i served also as the chairman of the board of the historical society and i was uh, instrumental in obtaining ownership of the lighthouse uh, from the federal government, so that the uh, local people could begin restoration of it. My wife and I worked very hard on the restoration. In fact, along with some of the other society members. So I must. You must have something to do with the tours
0: that they give at the lighthouse. Then that must be something that you were able to implement.
2: I gave tours for several years. Yes. Uh, we also conducted our uh, our fall haunted lighthouse events uh, man those were the best I, I put some of those scripts together it yep. was it was of course scripted but it was basically a, a number of tableaus based on the actual events that uh, we, we could bridge up uh, on the, uh families who lived there
3: right and that was always a thing that was um one of my favorite things Every year was the haunted lighthouse tour. That was something that I thought was really special, especially because I got to be in it a couple times. Yeah, weren't you
4: and you and was it you and Tony or you um... and
3: my buddy Dylan Thompson?
4: Yeah.
2: (laughs) Oh yeah, Dylan. Yeah. Man, it's been fun to say for many years. Yeah.
4: And you guys are actors, right? Yes. Yes. Nice.
3: But like Bruce said, like a a lot of it is based on events that happened in the lighthouse over the years which was fascinating because there's a lot of speculation on whether that lighthouse is haunted
2: or not <laughs> okay well before we go any further then let's clarify what is meant by these
1: um, the, um, phenomena of haunting but let's lay down some ground rules first um
2: your ghost, you know, it's a, or I hate to use the word ghost, but I will right now. I'd I prefer to use uh, the uh, term entities, uh, the um, entities that we've encountered uh, in various uh, forms in the Otanagan area. There, there's a logical explanation. Uh, look, guys, have you ever read A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens? Yeah.
0: I don't think I ever have.
2: You guys have, though, but I haven't. <laughs> you haven't?
0: No, I, I think that's something I probably should do, eh? Hey?
2: <laughs> well, then, obviously, your education and literature has been sadly neglected. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dickens, Dickens published his famous uh, story, A Christmas Carol, in 1843, which just happens to be the same year Antonagin was established. Uh, he, of course, was British. But you remember, it's a story about... Um, an old skinflint miser by the name of Ebenezer Scrooge, who uh, abuses his employees, and eventually is uh, haunted by three spirits. This changed in mind and an attitude. Now, I'd like you to recall with me some of that story. Bear with me. But when Scrooge um, comes home, and um, sees the um, image of Jacob Marley on his door knocker. He's a little taken back. Jacob Marley, of course, is his partner who has been dead for seven years. So Scrooge has a, a real tasty supper of gruel, kind of a great watery stuff, and, and decides to go to bed. And he's awakened in the middle
1: of the night by an entity uh,
2: to introduce himself as a ghost of Christmas past. And Scrooge is invited to step out of bed. The um, entity takes him by the hand, and they walk out the third-story window of his London townhouse. Scrooge pleads, look, I'm immortal. I'm going to fall. And they step through the window, and all of a sudden, Scrooge is back in his in a boyhood setting, walking down a country road, and he sees familiar sights and things he's known uh, years ago. and he says, why why, why spirit? I, I was a I was a boy here. I I I see familiar faces. And the <laughs> the spirit answers back, these are but shadows of the things that have been.
1: They have no consciousness of us. Now
2: let me try to make it a little more graphic for you. You guys are watching the football games. And this great play is take, has just occurred. And uh, the uh, losing team, or the team of the team that just had this play against them, calls a timeout. So everybody gets off the field. And the, uh, the announcer there in the radio station says, cut to a commercial quick. So they cut to a commercial. And after the commercial is over, the uh, field comes back on the screen. But the teams aren't back yet. So one of the announcers says, uh, let's see that play again. And presto, someone hits a button in the, sc- in the studio, and guess what you're seeing? An instant replay, just as if you were seeing it for the first time. These are the things that were. They, and, and those players on the screen now, uh, since it's a replay, have no consciousness of your presence. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is that the entities we're going to talk about are reflections of the past, things that were or possibly happened. And we can walk amongst these things and these things can happen around us. And there's no real material connection with us. Forget about the poltergeist throwing things around the room. That's not what we're about today. Mm -hmm. We're talking about unexplained entities that have been seen and witnessed by people here in the town
4: wow that's a really
0: that's, good analogy
4: that's powerful
2: yeah
0: i've <laughs> yeah, heard that before that's great oh my goodness now that being said where do you want to start the old school uh, i think that's kind of what we were <coughs> leaning towards hey aaron
4: yeah let's 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 run the school and and we can uh we can maybe uh get back to some some old lighthouse logs uh after
2: well you're anxious to get to the lighthouse aren't you uh, yeah. <laughs> well let's talk about we're,
4: we're we're interested in it all <laughs> all right um, uh, but yeah if you could give us kind of a um kind of a run through of the school um the grade school to our listeners um so that we can kind of get a, a glimpse of of what um what the history how many
2: of, of you guys is. actually attended classes in the old school I did it all the way until it closed. Yeah. We were
0: Chris Chris and I were there we went the last year. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I moved to Antanog when I was in third grade. So from third grade until sixth grade was when I was in that school and then that year it closed. And I remember Bruce, you actually came to the school and you, you had, still taught music, you, substitute. So you, you, you? you had and you had those Halloween tours. Yeah. You'd bring us up to the third floor in that building. I still, ah, yeah. that. I still remember that to this day. Oh, uh, yeah. We, we've, we've all well, you're one of the kids of those... I victimized. Okay. <laughs> right, right, right. right. <laughs> I couldn't sleep that night after you came to
2: school. <laughs> so, well, that's well, just fine. But I'm going to recall that one of those stories I told you then. Um, when I speak about the old school, I'm talking about the Antonagan Township High School building. We're not going to talk. Uh, we're not going to mention the uh, what you may have recalled as the as the center part of the building, the the elementary school, yeah. which was built in 1938 39. We're not going to talk about the annex down at the end, that that sterile little cardboard box that was built in
5: 1967.
2: <laughs> the storage uh, unit. We're going to talk about the red brick building that's three stories high. Okay. And that, uh, I believe the cornerstone says 1912. The building was actually designed by a fellow, an architect from. Menominee named Derek Hubert. Um, And that school has an interesting history. Um, It burned completely gutted by fire in 1929, and to be completely rebuilt, the only thing left was the four walls. Uh, So it's not the original floor plan it was way back when. And then lo and behold, in 1949, the building was struck by lightning. And the roof burned off, and there was so much water damage. All the classes, it was in May, all of the uh, classes for the rest of the uh, school year uh, took place in the community building, or what you now call the library uh, theater building, okay? And then there was another fire in the building, I believe, about 1969, when the teacher's lounge burned. Uh, So that that building, fire has been the uh, instrument of destruction for that building for a long time.
3: So they built it out of bricks and put a metal roof on it.
2: Uh, actually, the roof, my friend, and the, and, the, and the, uh, that old building, was originally wood, and, and when the building burned the uh, second time, they they, they put a way light concrete roof on it uh, with uh, uh, sheet metal on top of that, and that's what exists today. And by the way, that roof has never leaked. The flat roof, but didn't leak. I did it right. Now, back to the uh, back to the story. Uh, one of the uh, teaching legends of the school was a fellow by the name of Emil Ora, O-R-A. All uh, um, the students called him
1: Doc Ora. Now, Doc had been a... Um,
2: he was a soldier in World War I. And he had been subjected to something called shell shock. So he had a nervous condition, kind of a twitch... And he stammered terribly. He taught mathematics uh, and physics, um, and his main laboratory was up on the third floor of the of the building, actually in the southwest corner,
1: is what the, actually where the chemistry lab was.
2: Um, like I say, Emil Ora had a uh, a very uh, pronounced stutter um one of his former students told me that they'd be sitting in a class and doc Ora had a big pocket watch he wore uh, with a um chain across his uh, his vest he wore a vest he wore a coat all, all, all was a tie carried an umbrella when he came in he looked like the typical uh absent-minded professor and you will see pictures of him if you go to the ontogen township building I look at some of the old class pictures um the most remarkable picture is the last one he appears in where there's a just a radical change in his appearance uh like there was suddenly a decline in health but that's that's beside the case uh one of the school custodians told me this story uh he was in the uh, building on a sunday afternoon uh there was a time when that building was heated with uh, Coal
1: coal boilers with interruptible fuel oil.
2: And from time to time, if the, um, and then eventually they went to natural gas, uh, but they still kept the fuel oil uh, on standby. And if there was a heavy uh, draw on the natural gas lines running in the hog, the school was notified and they had to go and switch over to fuel oil rather than. Using natural gas for a few hours, so the head custodian had gone in that night and that afternoon on a Sunday to change things over. So he f- flipped the switch, fired up the boilers on on fuel oil. I thought he better sit around for a little while to make sure he, that the flames work. So he's sitting there in his room, and as he's sitting there,
1: he sees a gentleman walking into the building,
2: coming down the hall and starting up the stairs now the door is locked nobody's supposed to be in the building so he hollered hey hey uh, can i help you no reply the uh the figure just continued walking up the stairs um well the a got out of his chair and headed up the stairs after whoever this was and he gets to the second floor nobody there but he can hear steps going up to the third floor now, at that point, the third floor you see had been closed off. It had been closed off for a number of years. At the head of the stairs, there was a fire door that had been, that had been erected. So there's no access to that third floor. Yet I know, now I'm going to catch the guy. He gets up to the third floor. The door is still closed. Nobody's there.
1: So he pulls out his keys, opens the door, and walks into the third floor. and Looks about and
2: sees some movement in the old science lab over the southwest corner of the building. So he went and looked through the window glass,
1: and he sees this, sees this figure walking about, wearing a black lab coat, like, and
2: moving around and setting up experiments on the on the uh, science desks that were once passed down to the floor. Except those science desks aren't there anymore. The the outline is still on the floor where these desks were. And this figure is just going about and setting things almost in midair and setting up these experiments, like getting ready to teach a class the next day, which would be a Monday. And so he raps on the door, and
1: the figure doesn't even look up just keeps on doing what he's doing.
2: Well, that fellow got, he, he he was totally spooked. He headed down the stairs, closed the doors behind him, and told me about it later on. He said, this is impossible. This couldn't have happened. But obviously, it did.
1: Now, I told you that Doc Ora carried a pocket watch on his vest. And um, one of his students told me, he said, from time
2: to time, the kids would, would holler out, hey, hey, Doc, what time is it? And Doc Or would say, it's
1: exactly 10.45. Thank you. And he keeps on going. Later, the kids would holler again. Hey, Doc, what time is it? Five minutes to 11. Thank you. Now, one day, one day, Oral was in the classroom, and the kids hollered out what time it was. And Aura looked at his watch. He said,
2: Oh, excuse me. He says, It's two minutes of noon. Put the watch in his pocket, took off his lab coat, hung it up in the corner of the lab,
1: put on his coat, put on his overcoat, put on his hat, picked up his umbrella,
2: and walked out the door. Went downstairs. The parking lot, got in his black 1948 Buick Torpedo sedan, and drove away. It was later determined that that was the exact minute
1: that he was to retire, and had, and that's the
2: way he retired from the classroom. Simply walked out the door, and that is it. um He was a native of Ashland, Wisconsin. I've been told, and I understand that much later, he um, after uh, Clearing up his affairs in Ontonagon, he went out to the west coast to visit a brother. Uh, I've been able to, unable to get the exact uh, date or circumstances, but Mr. Ora evidently took a plunge off a five-story window and fell to his death, and you know, they felt it was a suicide.
1: That was within a year of his retirement. Now, so so
2: many times we associate. Are you still there? You just went blank. There we are. Tony, our, our um, Shiner. Yeah, I'm here. You disappeared for a moment. <laughs> There's usually uh, some sort of tragic event that may be associated with the appearance of some of these entities. Now, whether this, uh, the tragic death of Aura, uh, ties in with his return of his entity to, um, for want of a better word, haunt the halls of the old school, a place where he spent so many years as a teacher uh, and coming in uh, weekends and setting up the experiments for his students and uh, as a very dedicated uh, teacher. You'll find some of the old yearbooks from the 1920s, you'll see a very involved in student activities. Um, there were not many yearbooks published during the 1930s because of the depression. And then again, he reappears in the 1940s and early 50s in the Boulder yearbooks of that time. So does the spirit of Doc Oro still walk those halls? Who is to you know?
0: Well, you mentioned, you mentioned his pictures being up at the uh, township building, which, which is now yes. the library and the theater. And I actually noticed. So I graduated high school in 2014. And we, right. we did, uh, I forgot what service or ceremony it is for the graduates, for the for the church baccalaureate baccalaureate yeah so we Great. we did baccalaureate at the at the theater and i remember sitting in one of those rooms looking at the pictures and of course you know the story everyone knows the story of doc Ora. and i actually noticed on my own what you were talking about how for many years for 10 years he he seemed to not age at all and then the last year that he taught
2: Suddenly the hair is thin. Right. He
0: looked great. He looked completely different. And I noticed that on my own. I had never, no one ever told me that. And I looked at it and I was thinking, holy cow, that's the last year. And look at, (laughs) look at how he looks that last year
2: compared to the last 10. It was, Mm. it was unbelievable. Now, there are a lot of people. I shouldn't say a lot. There are a number of people still in Ontonagon who remember Doc Ora, and were actually pupils of his. But most of them at this point would be in their nineties. So you'd have to ask around a bit. Yeah. No. The, late, the late Vic Kiefer, superintendent of schools, told me uh, this much about Doc Ora, about his personal life. He was a bachelor, by the way. Uh, he had a mother who lived in Ashland, Wisconsin. So uh, often he'd run down to Ashland to make sure she was all right. But he never. <laughs> well, anyway, so much for poor Doc Ora and the, science, the haunted science lab in the old school. By the way, when's the last time you guys were in that building? It's been a long time, but I'm dying to get in there. I really am. Well, I just happen to have a key,
3: Mr. Shiner. You have a key. Of course I have. Wow. My my wife is super fascinated with the whole building. And I think the whole place is really, you know, the the masonry work in that school is some of the craziest masonry work and glass work you'll ever see, especially like in the kindergarten room.
2: That was one of the coolest things in the world. Chris, if you walked in there today, you're going to break your heart. Really? The building's been without heat, without electricity, without any real maintenance now uh, since 2011. it's oh, horrible. And a, and a building that is just it, the, – the condition is it's still quite salvageable. Mm-hmm. But it's deteriorating quickly. Um, if you guys are really interested in taking a uh, – a private tour and are willing to, uh, to agree that if you break a leg, you're not going to hold me liable. <laughs> uh, the, the old school does now belong to the village of Ontonagon.
5: Really, and,
2: yeah. and I am a member of the old of the Greenland road school commission that are, and we've been charged with the mission of trying to find an alternative use for that school building. And we certainly like to see it saved. Mm. Cause I know that somebody didn't
0: somebody buy it years back and just nothing happened to it and
2: yes, a gentleman by the name of Michael G. Melby, MGM, purchased it as well as the former Maple Manor, which was a, which was the original Antioch Memorial Hospital. Oh. Uh, then he chose not to do anything <laughs> with those buildings. Uh, shut off the heat, shut off the electricity, and everything went to heck. It's a bummer. Uh, the uh the old school finally went up for taxes and the village was given the opportunity to acquire the building and at that time i was still on the ontario county historical society board and i urged the village to grab that consider, the, it, al- consider the alternative
4: do you know what the yeah. um what it went for was there like an undisclosed price or
2: i mean the first time it was sold Mm-hmm. Yeah, roughly or, or forty thousand dollars for the whole thing.
4: 40000 wow. $40, dollars only. That, wow.
2: included, that, that included the all three buildings, the school bus garage, the old athletic field, and quite a bit of acreage as well. Wow!
4: And and what did the historical society uh, or the the village nab it back from him for?
2: The taxes. Just, Just the, the, taxes. Okay. the taxes. Okay. the Taxes.
4: Wow. Hmm.
0: He wasted all that. He bought it for forty grand and didn't do anything with it? That's crazy. Wow
3: Yes, it did. Oh forty grand in taxes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty interesting. I um I've always I haven't heard that story about the school in a long time. But next time we're all in Otanagan we should definitely uh Definitely indulge in the visit to the school. I will
0: definitely accept that invite to get a private tour. That'd be awesome.
4: Maybe in the spring or summer when it's a little warmer in there. (laughs) Right, yeah.
2: Oh, but this time of year is a good time to be in there when it's cooler and damp and
4: dark. Mm And
5: creepy.
4: <laughs> yep. Um. So so Doc Ora didn't have any descendants. Did he have any? No. Siblings, did he have any siblings that had kids? So like any nephews running around? I know mean, or... nothing
2: about the brother in on the West Coast. Okay. Ooh. I Not wish I, could, I I wish I had more information on that. He sounded like a real interesting fellow. Yeah. I know that he was a special courier during World War One, uh, uh, carrying messages from from the various one French to another in France. Really? Well, like I said, he was shell shocked yes. and had a nervous condition.
3: Yeah. That's a horrifying job.
4: How fascinating is it to think that that brother out on the West coast, um, if you know, if he's got, if he's got descendants that are still around today, and there are a couple of, a couple of kids from Michigan still talking about this and still bringing up this story.
2: The Onchanagan Lighthouse. You want to talk about?
4: <laughs> right into it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I love it. Well, let's go. So, uh, I guess my first question that I have um, about the lighthouse um, is a little bit, maybe not less, as much on the rest- restoration process, which I'm sure is it was extensive. Um, but acquiring it from the federal government um, was that like a Coast Guard thing, or maybe you can talk to us about about acquiring it.
2: Well, I'll tell you about that. <laughs> Uh, there had been attempts to get ownership of the lighthouse by people in the village for a long time. And one one plan was to actually pick it up and move it over to where the Riverside Park is now and use it kind of as a, as a tourist information center. Mm, gotcha. You have an idea what's involved in picking up a masonry building? <laughs> and moving
4: it? Probably too much <laughs> for the little town of Montenagin.
2: <laughs> Not impossible. Um, how many of you are familiar with the Lighthouse at Sand Point in Barraga. Uh, I've heard of it. I don't Never. think I have been there. I've seen that. No. Well, you have to drive out onto the sand, the Ojibwe Recreation Area, and follow the signs. There's a little lighthouse out there. It's um, similar to Antonagin's, but smaller in scale. Uh, back in the 1890s, that lighthouse was actually picked up. It's a brick lighthouse, actually jacked up, put on greased skids and slid 300 feet back away from the lakeshore where it was being threatened with erosion. and was set back down to its current location. So it is possible to move these buildings. But getting back to the Ontokan Lighthouse, um, once the it it belonged to the Coast Guard, Uh, the old lighthouse service uh, was um, abolished by orders of uh, President Franklin Roosevelt in 1939 as a as a uh, economy measure, and charge of the, and the care of all of the lighthouses was then turned over to the United States Coast Guard. So after 1939,
1: all of the uh, lighthouse keepers actually were
2: coast guardsmen. Okay. But- uh, now, when the lighthouse was decommissioned in 19, uh, on January
1: first, nineteen sixty four, um, the Coast Guard turned it over to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Um, the uh, Detroit District
2: uh, has uh, control of the Onondaga Harbor. They're the ones who uh, arrange for the dredging of the harbor, maintaining it. Uh, uh, putting up break walls, and and so forth and so forth. And now the Corps of Engineers—it's it, it, a big, uh, how do you say, foggy bottom bureaucracy.
1: Uh, they do bridges, they do harbors,
2: uh, they do uh, dikes, they do—they do uh, you do, uh, know uh, break walls, breakwaters, and so forth.
1: They don't do lighthouses.
2: So it wasn't, it was just something that they got stuck with. Um, the local US Coast Guard auxiliary then used it as a clubhouse for a while uh, under license with the Corps of Engineers. But
1: little by little, they and they maintained it kind of, but it hadn't really taken care of, and they kept heat in it as well, but really hadn't been taken care of. Uh, the historical society began to show an interest in it, uh, but a lot of people wanted to go through it. Uh, we got a license,
2: a permit to take people through the lighthouse. But what was there to show them? A derelict building uh, that had uh, sagging floors, uh, out of the windows, uh, paint peeling inside. Um, it really wasn't much to see. Uh, actually, if you've been over to Marquette, Michigan, I looked at their lighthouse. Those folks haven't done a garden thing to theirs either.
0: Really? Because actually, that's where I, I'm living right now in Marquette.
2: Go look at that lighthouse. And you and you say, why an affluent community like Marquette is in that lighthouse? Look the way it does, but they do. Here with us,
1: we decided to do something about Ontonagon. So uh, several of us guys got together. The late David Corbett. John Doyle, Bruce Rudla, and myself,
2: and we sat down over a chicken dinner one day in Dave Corbett's kitchen, and talked about the light outs. And Corbett said, "You know, why don't we just go for ownership? Well, it's been tried so many times before. No, let's let's really go at it this time." So we divvied up the chores. Uh, Rudla and Doyle, and Doyle, of course, was the former maintenance man at Smurfit Stone. He knows buildings. Rudolph is very handy with his hands and, and very resourceful. They were going to go in and stabilize the building as much as they're allowed to. They're allowed to because the Corps of Engineers didn't really want to doing much to change it.
3: Just refurb it, kind of, rehab
2: it? Not, not even do that. Just try to, glass falls out of a window, put hmm. some, it, stick it back in, <laughs> try to hold it together. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, uh, Dave Corbett said, I'll deal with the local politicians and, and, and the people who want to pick it up and move it. We were adamant we didn't want it moved. We did not want it moved. And, fort- and, and it was fortunate for us that back in 1976, a gal from the State Historic Preservation Office had rushed through Ontonagon and slapped two of the historic buildings on the National Register of Historic Places. One being the old courthouse, mm-hmm. and the other one being the Antonian Lighthouse. So it already had designation as a, as a historical site. So Corbett was going to take care of that. And I said, well, what do you want me to do? Well, they said, oh, you get the best job of all. You get to deal with the Corps of Engineers. <laughs> you got to get them to give it to you. Oh, ha, ha, ha. Instead,
1: we tried. I tried a little different tack. I got a hold of
2: our U.S. Congress, congressional representative, Bart Stupak, Hmm. and I also got a hold of our U.S. Senator at that time. Um, Come on, you civic students. Who was the Senator of the United States? Who served the U.S. Senate. You guys, Aaron, you got this. Aaron, you know it. I'm afraid, Chris. We're all you got in
4: the it. Dark on this one. I don't know, Chris. You know it. Come <laughs> on. Carl
2: <Hey, you're laughs> <girl> eleven. <living>. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassing myself. <laughs> your civics education <laughs> has also been grossly, grossly. <laughs> it <ain't laughs> just. It's not just civics, sir. <laughs> a it's lot, a of, lot of subjects, sir. <laughs> I contacted Senator Levin's office as well, told him we really wanted the lighthouse in the worst way. Um, There were a lot of things we had to
1: go through, asbestos abatement, anything that would be, uh, yeah, that's a big deal. There was a huge fuel oil
2: tank sitting on the lighthouse grounds, uh, uh, oozing and dripping fuel oil into the soil. That had to be removed and then all of the soil dug up around that tank and replaced with fresh soil.
1: Well, that is beyond our, our capabilities. But
2: Senator Levin and Bart Stupak, without going to, into all of the details, uh, finally, in
1: 1990, the an omnibus bill went through the Congress called the... Um, Water Resources Development Act, nicknamed
2: WARDA, Water Resources Development Act. And this was what's going to pay for all of the funding for the Sioux Sulox operation, maintenance way down at the other end of the peninsula, uh, dredging the Ontonagon Harbor. The mill was still operating at that time. They still had the coal boats coming in on a regular basis. The harbor had to be dredged. The um, breakwaters had to be maintained. And stuck on the bottom of the Water Resources Development Act of 1990 was a tiny little two lines that said, the Secretary of the Army is directed to convey to the Yontnagan County Historical Society the Yontnagan Lighthouse and everything that goes with it. Well, No one, you know, half the Congress doesn't bother to read these bills anyway.
5: Mm
2: -hmm. It was signed, sealed, delivered. We received notification that the bill had been signed. We still couldn't do anything because now the Corps of Engineers had to go in there and they had to dig out that fuel tank. (laughs) They had to remove and dig out all of the soil. Uh Their army, their army. (laughs) Finally, in the end, we get, we're told, you've got the layout fine. We, got, we actually got the deed. The deed arrived at the Antonaghan uh, Historical Society by special delivery. Within 20 minutes, I was at the courthouse getting that deed registered. Now it belongs to the Antonaghan Historical Society. Now, is the Lake house haunted? <laughs> yeah. That's the question. Right? <laughs> That's why you're here. Well, <laughs>
3: well uh, uh, haunting isn't the word my re- reflections light,
2: that lighthouse is the oldest standing lighthouse on the kiwana Wow a lot of people don't realize that the Antogan lighthouse is older than copper harbors oh, really? six weeks six and by the weeks. way they're about six weeks they' and they're built off of very similar plans mm. and, but the Ongen lighthouse was lit first it is the oldest standing lighthouse still on the kiwana wow now, uh, on and I say on the Keweenaw. there's an older lighthouse out on uh, on the island uh, off the tip of Copper Harbor. Standard uh, Rock. No, Did Standard Rock it? is way out in the middle of the sticks.
4: Okay. Gotcha.
2: And I'm, I'm not thinking about Gold Rock. I'm thinking about the other one, the bigger one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that particular lighthouse, uh, which is identical to the one at Waitfish Point. Um, is uh, these from 1861. So it's even older. Wow. <laughs> by the way, when the uh, lighthouse service found a lighthouse, really late, they made a lot of them. So you've got Antigon, you've got Copper Harbor, you've got uh, the one on Huron Island. Um, let me see. There's a whole pile of them. Um, uh, Granite Island or by Marquette. Grand Island North, over by uh, Munising, Gull Rock, they're all basically the same lighthouse as the Anzaga Lighthouse. Okay? Now, by daylight, you walk in that lighthouse, it's a very unassuming building. You know, the windows are open, it's bright, it's airy, especially if the window's open. You've been in there, you know how pleasant it can be. Although in recent, uh, in, recent uh, in the last year, has been changed quite a bit due to new management over the museum. Um, I'm not in agreement with some of the changes they've made, but I'm no longer involved, so uh, I don't have anything to say about it anymore. <laughs>
0: just have, Never just though,
2: have your opinions, right? That's all you can do now. <laughs> the the and Lighthouse was constructed of Milwaukee Cream City brick, which itself makes it remarkable it's still standing because it does not weather well. Um, the first uh, that that first lighthouse, by the way, uh, the the one that's out there now, is not the first lighthouse to stand in Anjanagan. It's not the first. Nope. Uh, right next to the current lighthouse, a little closer to the river, was the original lighthouse that was built in 1851. Wow! And it wasn't actually. And it wasn't even lit until 1853 when the first lighthouse keeper in Ontonagon, a guy named Samuel Peck, took charge of it. And then the next lighthouse keeper in Ontonagon was a guy named Michael Spellman. And uh, he, Mike Spellman, is a, he was a town jailer. Yeah, the jailer. He also uh, is the first live burial in the Catholic Cemetery in 1881. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, amongst his other distinctions. But he was the lighthouse keeper from 1857 until 1862. And then in 1862, a mysterious fellow named Adolphus Schuler, the third lighthouse keeper, takes over and he runs it from 1862 till 1864. Now this, of course, puts us into the Civil War period. Now, one of the most colorful lighthouse keepers and one of our entities is a fellow named Thomas Stripe. And I'm sure you've heard of Thomas Stripe. Um, the Stripe family is still around Ontonogon. Um, they're, they're a very prominent family. They're a pioneering family. Uh, Thomas Stripe first arrived in Antigonish in 1849, working for the Hudson's Bay Company. Uh, he's the fellow who was involved in that Fourth of July accident in 1859, when the, uh, firing uh, the ceremonial firing of a cannon caused him to lose his right arm. Oh man! You've heard that story. It's coming back to me yeah, now. I, I recall
3: this. I recall uh, this fellow quite well. Poor Thomas.
2: Poor Thomas, poor Thomas Stripe, um, handicapped as he was. Was given the job of lighthouse keeper, and he held that job from 1864 until 1883, quite a long time. Wow! Yeah, and some of the light and a lot of the lighthouse journal entries that we have, uh, and until recently, the Ontario County Historical Society actually was in possession of that handwritten lighthouse keeper's journal.
5: Huh.
2: Now I understand that the current management of the museum has sent it off to Washington, so it's no longer here. However, uh, for my own part, um, I got my hands on it (laughs) and had it in my hands for a few months, during which time I transcribed it. It was all handwritten in cursive, of course. I transcribed it, and then later on, uh, we obtained from the National Archives the other lighthouse keeper's journals uh, that actually had been sent to Washington. So, so I t- it took me three years to transcribe all of these journals, oh. right, right from 1872 up until 1953 when they ended. And those lighthouse keeper's journals are still available for sale at the ontario County Historical Society Museum. Dang. <laughs> all there. And as I was going through, I began to find some very interesting Things, um, it is uh, uh, things we found out about the lighthouse that no one would have had any idea. Um, for example, we didn't know that the, that the original wainscoting was buried under some wood paneling in what is now the office. And once we peeled off the wood paneling, there was the, the original green wood paneling that Thomas Stripe would have been sitting in front of while he was filling out his uh, lighthouse keeper's journals. Uh, you know, there's some remarkable things. Yeah. Um, it anyway, is. Tom, Tom Stripe will then serve as a lighthouse keeper until 1883, when James Corgan will take over, and Corgan's also a very colorful and noted lighthouse keeper, who was there then until 1919. I won't go any farther than that right now, I'm only I'm throwing too many things against you. <laughs> I, can um, already, I can already see Mr. Shiner's attention begin to win. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no. yeah, I, got, I got a zoo of children in my house that I right. the first keeper
2: to work in the current lighthouse, in the current lighthouse, was Tom Stripe. And he's he's earned a place in local history uh for several of his local exploits. Um the tragic loss of his arm, saving Antonagon from starvation uh during an exploit with uh with dog sleds going over the ice to Eagle River to pick up the winter supplies all sorts of wonderful things he did um, tough little Irishman he was um,
1: Stripe. was actually he,
2: pardon me did he have a family
3: in the lighthouse with him or was he just oh, by himself yes
2: oh yes oh okay uh, Mister, his wife Catherine I believe that there were six children oh wow um, now, he also owned a house in town, of course. So uh, during the winter time, of course, the lighthouse is closed out. So he became a village. He was a village resident. And in the spring, he'd move out to the lighthouse and, and the light. He, he uh, writes in his journal. Um, and it's hard to imagine the lighthouse as being surrounded by forest and the wildlife area at that time. He talks about his sons going out and hunting geese on the river, uh, catching fish in the river, um, hunting in the in in the woods around the lighthouse, and uh, and cooking his wife cooking wild game in the lighthouse kitchen. Uh, yes, they had quite a quite a family. He and his wife slept in the one bedroom in the lighthouse, and the kids all bunked uh, in the big, spacious floor on the tie one big room in the. Top.
1: <coughs> and the top floor
2: is now partitioned into several rooms. Okay. Uh, Mr. Stripe, uh, or Mrs. Stripe, by the way, suffered a serious injury by falling down the lighthouse stairs. Uh, which, uh, and she became an invalid, which probably caused him to have to retire in 1883 and leave early to go home to care for her. He lived until 1899. And James Corgan, who visited, who was the regular keeper after that, notes several times that he was visited by Mr. Stripe, who came back over the lighthouse, to uh, just kind of visit the old shop and make sure things are going right. Now, Mr. Stripe is one of our entities who's
1: actually been seen on two occasions. Once at night, walking on the gallery around the lighthouse tower. Up on top, and the other two, and the other time, was during a during a tour. Oddly enough, during a lighthouse tour, recent times. Um, The tour was in the large bedroom, and
2: the fellow who was giving the tours at that time, Mister John Murray. Um, there, there were two, there was two couples, two ladies and two gentlemen, and Mr. Murray was well in his eighties at that time, so he had a little trouble opening and closing the trap door up at the top of the tower. So he'd only take up two people at a time, so he could, so he wouldn't have to lift and lower that trap door. They just went through it, came back out. You have to go through the tour Maybe you've had a lighthouse tour. You know what I'm
1: talking about. So while he was up uh, upstairs in the tower, uh, with these two guys, showing them the lighthouse.
2: Uh, in the meantime, uh, the two ladies you can are down below. phone call if you like. <laughs> and they're kind of poking and snooping around, opening drawers in the dresser. And oddly enough, they see that, you know, the linens in the closets uh, and in the dressers, everything's the way it should be, because we're very fastidious. And setting the lighthouse up as if somebody actually lives there, and indeed, those entities still do. But,
0: do you know what year that was? the The tour, like when they
2: that particular tour, it would have been in the early two thousands. Okay, and then do you right, do but... you know
0: the time when someone saw him out on the observation deck or up on the up on the what you said, like, on top of the lighthouse there by the light. Do you know when that was?
2: Uh, yes, that was before that time. Dylan Thompson, your friend, yeah. is the one who actually saw Thomas Stripe on oh, wow. the gap. Dylan, but a different story. Let's get back to the two ladies in the bedroom. They are poking around up there, you see? So what do they do? One of the ladies goes and opens the closet door. And we keep, you know, keep old junk up there. Uh, brooms, a couple of plastic totes and so forth. She opens the closet door and a guy steps out of, the, out of the closet into the
1: room and tips his hat into them, uses his left hand, tips the hat, his hat, a lighthouse keeper's hat
2: off his head, and then smiles, turns around, walks down the aisle, down the hall. One of the ladies noticed that his right
1: sleeve was cut off. There's nothing there, right? Now, so one said the other, "Did you see that?" Well, yeah. Who was that? They looked down the hall and down the aisle. Nobody's there. Well, when their husbands came down, um, John took uh,
2: the ladies up. Nothing more was said about it till the next day. I'm at the museum, and somebody comes and they come into the museum.
1: And they said. That guy who popped out of the closet for our wives, who was that? I said, what are you talking about? Well, we we didn't get to see that. Uh, we missed part of the show. Where was
2: that guy? I said, please describe what you saw. And they just, then they described to me what they had seen. And we didn't have anybody sitting in the closet to pop out at anybody. This was a spontaneous appearance by one of the entities.
0: Right. Yeah, you must have probably have been freaking out when they when they decided to describe his appearance. And once they got I mean, to the left arm being slightly right, easy, arm. Or right arm you must have been just like how was that? Like, like...
2: Mr. Stripe you understand was, was right handed. So his lighthouse journals are quite cryptic and sometimes they're different handwritings. like maybe he got somebody else to do his journal entries because obviously he was having trouble writing with a left hand that he'd never used for writing. He was right-handed.
1: Now, uh, the other time when he was spotted in the gallery, <laughs> um, Dylan Thompson was down in the yard. Um, he had been given
2: special permission to spend the night in the lighthouse. His parents were there too. Now uh, they were they were sleeping upstairs, and uh, at that time we didn't have. Um, Restroom facilities at the lighthouse, but we had a, one of those uh, porta sitting out in the, in, on the lawn.
1: So Dylan went out in the middle of the night to do what he had to do, and he comes out of the Portageon john. And he, he glances up at the at the tower. Now, back then we were still hooked up to the paper mill power plant, so we still had electricity out there. So we ran the light in the tower on, on, on a, on a uh, electric eye all night.
2: We had actually placed a large bulb up there the, in, in, in the tower. So, lighthouses are to be seen, you know. Um, and Dylan looks up and he sees a figure standing up there on the gallery. And the figure looks down at him. Now, that's some distance away, but. It's still, as he but the light was behind, so it was like a like, like what you saw was a shadow or a silhouette, but definitely a person.
1: And the figure waves at him with his left arm, stepped over behind and out of sight on the other side of the tower, and gone. And you ask Dylan about that; he will swear that he saw this
0: Wow. That's incredible. So it's only been the two the two sightings.
3: Well, that you know, um, that. <laughs> there's a sighting. There's a photograph. I know. Of, oh, you've seen that of me and Dylan Thompson. And there's a we we were in front of the master bedroom, weren't we? we? Were it was that night after we did the lighthouse tour, the haunted lighthouse, and we had the dinner. And my mom had taken a photo of Dylan and I in front of the bedroom at the end of the hallway there and between, right. between our heads it looks like there's something. I don't know if I can depict it or not but it is, I haven't seen this photo since, since it's been taken I don't know where it is we've,
4: we've got to get our hands on that
2: There have been some
1: cam-
4: uh,
2: camera images nothing, nothing we can really set down to. Now there was a team that came over from NMU a few uh, years back and they asked to spend the nights in the lighthouse. They had some sound equipment and so forth. They did. They're trying to research psycho phenomena. They determined that there was something there, but nothing that they could define or lay out. There was so, some sort
3: of energy that there was.
2: Yeah, but they could have been anything. Hmm. Depends on sensitive instruments, there. Could have been even just the, the fluorescent light going on. You know. Now, the other big ones that come up, come to mind at the Ontarian Lighthouse. Uh, I, I told you, that, you know, the lighthouse also has suffered fire. Uh, suffered a fire in 1899 when a uh, sparks came out of the chimney, set the uh, cedar shake uh, roof ablaze, and burned out the whole. Southwest corner of the building. Um, at that time, the Corgan sons, James Corgan and his and his boys, put up ladders, and they uh, his wife was on there pumping water like crazy out of the out of the uh, cistern in the kitchen, and they put the fire up before the fire department even got there, and they basically saved the lighthouse. But the other time the lighthouse was threatened by fire, of course, was on August twenty fifth, eighteen ninety six. And that date should mean something to you if you've grown up in Hontanagan.
0: That's the big Hontanagan fire. The diamond. That was the great fire of
4: Hontanagan in
2: 1886. Yep. Now, (laughs) before I get to that, um, in 1876, July 8th, 1876, uh, a uh, steam freighter named the Saint Clair pulled out of the Ontarian Harbor, carrying a few passengers and, believe it or not, some livestock as well. There were hogs and sheep on on the deck, and I think at least one cow. Uh, and they were on their way to Hope. The uh, Saint Clair was a, a real junky ship.
1: Okay. Hmm. It, uh,
2: it had been if you ask me some time about the history of shipwrecks, I can go into that in a little more detail. on that particular night, July eighth 1876, the same flare caught fire off a of 14 mile point. Now, back in those days, from the and tower, the shipyard building that we, that we know there now did not obstruct the view, and you could actually see. Almost a 14 mile point. did not quite stick up past 10 mile. Wow. But the St. Clair caught fire out in the lake. And the captain headed that vessel for shore.
1: Um, it was a tragic event,
2: only three survivors in the end.
5: Uh,
2: but on, it is said that on some clear nights in, uh, in July, uh, the image of the past often replaces itself again before our mortal eyes. because from the from the lighthouse tower until it disappears behind the shipyard building, you can see that burning Saint Clair moving toward 14 Mile Point and then disappears. Wow! <sighs> Holy cow! I've
0: never heard that before. Go, oh, well.
4: The ghost ship thing is actually uh something we have we have like kind of <laughs> talked about a little bit, but we never never could remember what, what the exact story was that that maybe Spurman Well there's another
2: about. ghost story ghost ship story too, but that I experienced myself, but let's get back to the lighthouse. <laughs> uh, hey. in eighteen ninety-six, the uh, the the lighthouse was threatened by fire. And James Corgan, being an old-time lighthouse, by God, in the, in the tradition of the sea, he's going to go down with his lighthouse. So him and his wife and a hired girl and a son, uh, young Tom, uh, uh, were in the lighthouse at that time. And as the fire began to approach the lighthouse, they dipped water out of the river Ran up the lighthouse stairs and up into the tower and threw the water onto the roof of the building to wet it down. Jeez, I'm igniting. Many, many times they did this. Imagine the heat, the air oh. in your light, your your windpipe as you're struggling, and your eyes are just uh, burning from the smoke uh, because the wind was coming from the southwest, blowing right toward the lighthouse. Mm. Um, now, it is said and it has been reported that every so many years, on August 25th falls on a Tuesday, which was the actual day of the fire, Tuesday, August 25th, it's been reported that the entire scene is reenacted in silhouette. It's been reported that the entire scene no, no one can be seen on the tower. In the tower, but if you get down, actually, if you get up in the tower, get up in the tower and look out on the lawn, you will see the reflection of that tower at that time of the afternoon. When the sun is behind you, and you will see figures moving around you, carrying what appears to be pails and dumping things off the edge of the, of the uh, railing and then disappearing again. It clearly shows the movement of figures on the lighthouse gallery, carrying pails and pouring the contents on that roof. And by the way, the wind shifted and blew the fire away and saved the lighthouse. Now, can we get can we get that tour on that night? <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to talk. you well. It's first of all that tour is about four o'clock in the afternoon hour It's in daylight because you're talking about. Shadows from caused by the sun on the lawn, so you'll have to talk to the and you'll have to show up on a Tuesday, August twenty fifth. Check your calendar; it happens every so many years. Marking it now. <laughs> That's where you are. All right. Who wanted to talk about the jogger on the Greenland Road?
0: That was Aaron, or Aaron and I both want to hear it because we both yeah. have heard about that and actually have gone out trying to trying to seek for it. Actually, to rut, I mean, that was when you were really young up. and really bored.
4: <laughs> yeah.
2: All right. Well, let's see here. Tell you what I'm going to do. I wrote this down. So I'm going to read it to you. Do you mind?
4: No, no perfect.
2: No, That's we don't right. mind. Our next tale is mysterious, and that though there are several persons who have experienced this strange happening, there's a difference in the accounts and yet a similarity of circumstances. Now, the first incident involves a young man driving home at night on M20, M26, twenty M the Greenland Road, of course. I'm sorry, M38. Boy, I should know my
1: geography better than that. Oh. M38. You?
2: Yeah. My wife just corrected me, too. <laughs> uh, the fellow was making good time when suddenly, out of nowhere, a man on foot appeared right in front of him. It was too quick and too late to avoid the inevitable.
1: He hit the brakes and closed his eyes, braced for the impact. Then nothing, nothing. He got out of the car and looked around. Nothing, no one,
2: no damage to the car. Absolutely no sign of anyone on the road. Well, he continued home somewhat shaken and awaited of the news the
1: next morning of a hit and run on the Greenland Road. Still nothing.
2: He is still absolutely certain to this day that something something or someone was out there in front of his car that he hit.
1: Now the next report it involves a lone individual this
2: time described as a jogger. This motorist now is approaching the area near the landfill. When in the headlights he caught sight of a lone jogger wearing a bright orange jogging outfit.
1: I've heard the story uh,
2: a couple of times. Sometimes it's a green jogging suit. But the first one I heard is was orange, running against traffic. Running against traffic. So the individual's running on the right side, on the correct side of the road. Um, he slowed a bit But just as he was passing the runner, the figure in orange seemed to stumble and fall in front of the car. Then there was a thud.
1: He stopped, jumped out of the car to surrender aid. No one there. Not a sign of anyone. Now another account, the
2: jogger is encountered in a snowstorm. This gets better now, snowstorm. You know how our lake effect snows can be up here. The same location near the landfill is given as the place of the encounter. But this time, the runner throws himself in the path of the car. And there's a feeling of an impact. The driver stops to see what happened and finds nothing.
1: But in this account, different than the others, there's a broken headlight on the car on the passenger side. Now, I've told you that there's no connection with these entities with physical. So this doesn't make sense, but it's
2: inconsistent with what I'm telling you. Now, the mystery of the unidentified, the unidentified pedestrians moving along M38 continuous.
1: In this account, the driver, a, um, she told me the story herself, Mrs. R., Never mind the name, was uh, driving toward Greenland on M38 at night, and a large truck was approaching uh, in the northbound lane. So she's going toward Mass City. This truck is coming up. Uh,
2: She could see in the lights of the truck a tall man walking on the wrong side of the road that is not facing traffic on her side of the road but not facing traffic she could discern clearly that the man was wearing a denim jacket and blue jeans and had a uh, a chuck on his head uh you probably call him a stocking
1: cap no a chuck. no not
2: a beanie a chuck no kind of a knit cap you pulled on uh, she thought she recognized the man and thought maybe his car had broken down. He might need a ride. But she continued toward Greenland. She saw no car on the road. So she kept on going. And then a short time later, she heard the same account from a neighbor who had seen the same mysterious walker at night making his way along the Greenland Road heading toward Ontonoggin with no sign of a disabled vehicle sight.
1: So who or what are several people
2: witnessing while driving along the Greenland Road at night? Is our walker related in some way to the jogger who actually interacts with motorists, who knows what or whom you might meet walking along highways in Ontario County at night? And of course, is a little ways up from the poor farm.
0: Right. Which, I was just going to ask: Do you have is there any significance in that? Like, there is no explanation. There's no story of somebody that was jogging in that area that had gotten hit
4: nothing.
2: absolutely nothing wow that's and another, interesting
4: and another thing that's very bizarre is that there's no there's like nothing around there when you're like that's right when you're going by there yeah, it's a vast expanse of nothing beautiful view when you're coming into antinag and down from that hill but there is just there's nowhere for somebody to just pop out of nowhere <laughs> That's that's kind of the most chilling thing about it
0: <laughs> So I, I guess I, I want to tell you a story That I had Um, with Aaron actually was with me And I was with another friend In that same area sure. just after the dump there We were coming back from Houghton We watched a movie And I was in the passenger seat of the car My buddy was driving And up ahead Again this was just after the, the landfill there We saw what looked like reflectors on a bike That were rotating Across the road Mm-hmm. And it was just, just the reflector lights, didn't see if it was an actual bike, couldn't see the spokes, the seat, a person, but we just saw these lights kind of going in this circular direction across the road, like somebody was on a bike right. going across. And it hit the ditch, and we still saw the lights going down into the ditch, and then it just kind of disappeared into the woods. And we had got, we had gotten out, and of course we were freaking out, and we got out and looked to see if there was a bike or somebody that was on the side of the road, and there was nothing. And that was along kind of the same stretch of highway there. So I don't know if that's related or not, but that was just our experience.
4: Another thing that's weird with that story, if you've ever, if, you, if you've ever been like, um, at like a stoplight and there's a crosswalk and you've seen somebody, you know, in your car, you've seen somebody, uh, jogging by, and I never thought about this until right now. It's kind of weird. Um, but if somebody's jogging by and they have like r- actual runner shoes that have reflect like reflective tape on the side of them, it's not a complete circular pattern, obviously, like a tire. And I was actually asleep, I think, in the back seat of that yeah, car, and I don't, I, I don't guess. remember it. I mean, at
0: the time, maybe it looked like it. Yeah, it was just- and I don't,
4: I don't know. But if you've seen that, those reflectors on those shoes are are very. I mean, they're when your headlights hit those, you see them right away. Yeah. So. Kind of a weird, I mean, maybe a bit of a stretch. And I, like I said, I was not awake for it, but mm-hmm. I just had that thought.
0: So let's talk about the the poor farm. Yeah. Because I, let's feel, I feel like not a lot of people know the history of that. I don't know. I, yeah. I just haven't. Because we always see the building coming in on Tanagan, and it's just you don't know anything about it. At least I never knew.
2: Yeah. All right. We'll start with a history lesson. Sure. There's, first of all, Uh, There's been a poor farm in Ontonagon since 1854, not that building. But uh, approximately 204 acres was set aside as a place for indigent citizens to spend their last days. Um, Crippled lumberjacks, uh, miners who had uh, silicosis of the lungs, uh, Old lumberjacks who were stove up from working in the woods and they're, and they're too stiff with arthritis to, to work anymore, it'd be someplace for them to go. Uh, and you didn't have a Department of Social Services from the state of Michigan in those days. Each county took care of its own. And Anzanagan County did its, did its, its part. Um, finally, and, and eventually became quite a quite an enterprise. There was a large farm out there. An L-shaped barn, a silo, a uh, fine herd of registered Holstein dairy cattle, a pig barn, a horse barn, uh, a greenery, a chicken house, and of course the main infirmary. And out behind the infirmary was another building, which the tib- which was the tuberculosis sanitarium. And all of this was run by Antelope County, kind of like a. Lo- uh, be. It'd correspond to the long-term care facility that has now been closed on by aspires, but which was to take care of people, all right? Mm-hmm. That particular building out there was built in 1900. It took 10 boxcar loads of brick to construct that building. It's a huge manor house. Um, it had facilities for both men and women Uh, doctors visited on a regular basis Um, there's a huge central dining hall inside Um, they also had the uh the uh, dairy for the barn or for the farm located in the basement where they actually processed the milk um the it was the county farm was actually a self-sustaining facility. And those patients who are capable of working, a lot of these older people don't want to feel useless, so they're given chores to do, like feed the animals, take care of the pigs, uh, muck out the stalls in the barn, uh, help with the planting, uh, help with the haying a little bit. Um, they, they were given chores and duties as as they were able to do. Uh, the, in fact, Uh, the entire record of of the uh, patients at that farm were in the possession of the Antonaghan County Historical Society again until recently, but I believe it's been digitized as available online. There's some very interesting names you see in there. Anyway, uh, a, a quick review of those records reveals a number of maladies and afflictions, a lot of them related to the to occupations, like black lung caused by inhaling dust following the blasts in the mines. Um, A number of illnesses, dropsy, blindness, um, pneumonia, strokes, rheumatism, um, and even insanity. Uh, There were people actually incarcerated there who were insane. tuberculosis was on the rise. This required a special isolation. So that was taken care of in the back. Uh, Oddly enough, tuberculosis is very prevalent among Native Americans. And and oddly enough, there's a high incidence of it also among Finnish Americans. And you know that the uh, population here is uh, heavily laced with those people from Northern Europe. Now, um, one patient especially comes to mind, a fellow by the name of Richard Langford. L-A-N-G-F-O-R-D. Now I'm sorry, I'm falling into my classroom method of spelling. <laughs> You're supposed to be writing this down, of course, as I give it to you. Uh,
0: pop quiz in a little bit here.
2: <laughs> All right. He was admitted to the poor farm in 1908. He had um diabetes. Uh of course, that's back in the days before they had insulin and other medications. So his uh, and he was uh, they figured he was about seventy-five years old, seventy-eight, and his diabetes had caused him to go blind. He lost his vision, and they called him the Hermit of Lake Gogebic because he lived down on Lake Gogebic in a shack. But since this was a part of ontonagon County, uh, the authorities brought him kicking and screaming to the poor farm to spend his last days. Um, And they were just concerned about the old man, you know? So he's taken to the county farm for care, and he died after a few weeks as a patient. But Mr. Langford is remembered today as the fellow who discovered iron ore on the Gugibic Range. He was the one who first called attention to the fact that there was iron ore, he discovered on a hill right beside the current-day uh, city of Besmer. Uh, the the, uh, the Colby and they called it the Colby Mine, and he never got a dime for his discovery. I was going to say, did he have, get royalties oh, or something? That's unfortunate. Never got a wow. He was promised royalties. He was cheated out of the whole thing. While he was there, dying in the in the poorhouse, uh, raving. he said, "Please." please take me back to my shack. He said, I can tell you where I can tell you where the silver is. And he related a huge vein of silver embedded in a rock on the banks of Lake Ogibik. Now, this is back in the days before Lake Ogybik was dammed up to its current uh, depth. So that Venus Silver probably now under the shallow waters of Lake Okeechobee, which is basically an artificial lake. You know.
4: Oh, I didn't know that. No.
2: Oh, really? Uh, you didn't take my class, did you? <laughs> <laughs> now, the infirmary building had amongst its uh, its other features, uh, patients in their last agony of life, who might be moaning and groaning. And, and and suffering, but they, what are they going to do? There was a special room up in the vault, under the vault, in the attic, under the high vaulted ceiling, called the dying room, where these patients oh, were brought up into the attic, and you know, they were fed and looked after, but uh, they were making as so much noise as other patients couldn't sleep, so they were kept up there until they expired. Um, and if you go up in the in the attic right now. You will see names written on those rafters, and dates. It's it's fascinating. They go that. and the building is not going to be standing much longer. No, it doesn't look too good, to, and it's dangerous to go into now. But um, I've been in there when it was a good sound building, and I took a group of four hers through there four years ago, and we photographed and took pictures of a lot of these names and so forth. Anyway, after the people uh, expired, uh, they they were then placed in caskets in a cold northeast corner of the building, where they would keep until such time as the undertaker came out from Ontonagon, collected the caskets, might be two or three at a time, and bring them out to the Evergreen Cemetery to the potter's field, where then they'd be buried. And uh, all of those uh, those graves were at one time, had little metal markers on them. Uh, Then Someone got tired of mowing around these markers and hitting them with a lawnmower. They're all yanked up. So now there's no yeah, you can't even find them anymore. I I went out there one day and all of a sudden all the markers are gone. Uh, however, um a lot of people you know high in the in the evening through the, through the, and through the night. If you over there go over there near the old candlelight club. Yeah, and, and and you look off toward the toward, toward the uh, poor farm. Uh, you can sometimes see what appears to be lights flickering in some of the windows. As, as few the few and some of the windows are broken out now. So you're not seeing this as much. Uh, I lived in that neighborhood at one time, and we could see from our front door blue lights flickering at the poor farm. Wow. <laughs> holy cow! You know, so you have to ask yourself: Do the spirits of the of the poor old bone lumberjacks, or the injured miners who died in this house, do they still move about those rooms uh, where they spent the last months or days of their mortal lives?
0: You know, Aaron, Aaron and I have always, every time we've gone past that building, have always talked about how awesome it'd be to go in there. But obviously, seeing the condition it's in right now. Do you know who owns like
2: that property or that building? Is it It is it is private property. You have no business going in there sure. on, without a member of the family with you.
0: Right. And I think I saw I, I, even on Facebook somebody went there without permission. And there was this did. big Did you see that too, Aaron? I saw it. I, it, I was going to ask it, about it. it but... almost seemed like there were people from out of town that didn't know yeah. that you couldn't go in there. Cuz I'm not sure. I've never even approached the building at all. I don't know if there's like no. signs or if there's
2: I was I was at the building. Uh, right next to it, taking several photographs, uh, last December, uh, because, uh, my, uh, my daughter, my son-in-law and myself constructed a scale model of that building. And it's now in the, it's not in the museum. You can go in there and see it. Uh, so you can see what once upon what it looked like. Uh, we included the, uh, the pump house behind and the windmill that used to stand behind it as well. As a part of the uh, building, I guess I wanted to ask: Is there any any experience
0: that you've had personally? But I know you just said you saw the blue lights flickering in in the old poor poor farm house. But has there <laughs> ever been an experience that that you've? It looks like you're digging there. It looks like you may have something for us. Because I've always yeah. wondered if you've ever experienced anything out of the ordinary. Uh, yes. Anything you care sharing with us? or
2: This was in the summer of 1967. Uh, that was probably before you were even uh, like, gleaming your daddy's eyes. <laughs> <right? laughs> no, no. It was a clear day in the morning hours of July. At that time, we were living out near the Township Park on Lakeshore Drive. There was a gentle breeze from the east. I'd gone outside and walked toward the beach when I clearly saw the ship. Now, so you understand where this actually was. You know where the Osnagin Township Park is, of course. Yes. Yep. And just east of the park, a little ways, um, the late Paul Kuzik uh, put up a couple of uh, old truck bodies and painted it up. Up to look like a caboose on a boxcar. Yes, I know where that is. It's right after the the campground. Yes, yep. I lived on that site at that time, 1967. He owned the property. I was renting the property. I had a mobile home out there. Now, what I saw was a schooner rigged, two masted sailing vessel of modest size.
1: You know what a schooner is? I don't think
0: so. No. Wow. Aside,
2: Failing you here. A- Well, go look it up, uh, the the rigging styles of sailing vessels. But most of the uh, sailing vessels on on the Great Lakes were schooners, not square-rigged
1: vessels. Um, I
2: could see people moving about on the deck. I could even hear some voices coming from across the water. It was that close. The ship was not under full sail, suggesting that I was headed for the Ontonagon Harbor I was dropping some of the canvas to reduce speed in preparation of entering the breakwaters. Now, the Antarctica in 1967,
1: there was no marina. Uh,
2: where visiting vessels came in, they went up the slough and tied up alongside of the north end of the island, right behind. Uh, where Rich Waitman, Richard Waitman has
1: got his um, his uh, rock rock shop okay. my first thought was that this ship was
2: some sort of a reproduction of a nineteenth century lake schooner uh, i'm I'm a, I'm a nut on ships. I called my wife and she came out, and she too caught a glimpse of the ship. I told her I, I think it's heading for the into Ontonagon, and I really want to get a better look at it. So I jumped in our car. She stayed home. I jumped in our car and drove into the village and headed for the marina. By the way, my car at that time was a 1965 Plymouth Barracuda. Nice. At that time, the Ontoag Marina was much smaller. It was located at the tip of the island and used the slough as a docking area. I drove into the lot behind the Gitche Oil Company, which it was, was at that time and approached a gentleman who seemed to be in charge of the marina. And I asked him if the schooner had docked yet. He gave me a puzzled look and asked me what schooner I was talking about. I explained that from out near the township park, I had seen a two-masted schooner <laughs> heading into port. and was curious about who owned it and how old it was. Now, the gentleman I was talking to turned out to be the harbor master. I think his name was, I better not say the name because I'm not sure. Uh, The harbor master informed me that he had no idea which boat I was talking about and that there was no schooner that docked at Antonagin. I looked out towards the lake and there was nothing approaching the harbor. The schooner that I had clearly seen just a few minutes before heading for the tip of the breakwaters wasn't there. Now, was this a mirage? A brief view into another time dimension. A replay of an image of the past. This type of schooner would be identical to the a, a vessel called the George W. Ford that was owned by the famous mariner of Antaragon, Captain John G. Parker. And I've there are pictures of that vessel. And it's it's what I saw. At the time I knew only a few things about Antonagan's maritime history. I'd only been here uh, a little over a year. I was I was a, I was a band director, I was a school teacher, I wasn't into history like I am now, yeah, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah, you're probably looking I to get out of that,
2: there. And <laughs> I learned that Antigonish actually had two resident schooners, a ship called the Seaman, owned by Captain Daniel Beezer, and then two vessels owned by Captain John Parker. And the latter mariner, John Parker, is very well documented. He served as a mate on it, later purchased and operated the fur trader, which was a two-masted schooner and, uh, that he bought from the American Fur Company in 1849. So these vessels actually existed. Parker had a, had a contract to haul Minnesota mine copper to Sault Ste. Marie, which he did for over a year. And then the fur trader was directed and he, had, and he got another ship, the George W. Ford, and continued for years doing that. By the way, the George W. Ford has an interesting history, too. He bought that ship in Milwaukee and brought it to Ontonagon. First, he had to come up Lake Michigan. and to come up the St. Mary's River. And at this point, there are no Sioux locks. So they literally picked this, Boat out of the water, put it on logs and rolled it down the main street of Sault Ste. Marie, and pushed it back into Lake Superior. <clears throat> A lot of vessels came into Ontonagon or portaged that way, portaged around the falls. You didn't have uh, the Sioux locks operating until 1855. Wow. So the George W. Ford was brought to Ontonagon by portaging. And it was a two masted schooner, a modest size, although I think the ship I saw was somewhat smaller and um, it was lost off of eagle harbor um in eighteen seventy I was going to ask if it if it
0: had sank, but now it yes. kind of makes makes sense
2: that 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 vessel uh sunk um off of the uh off of eagle harbor and it went down, of course, and now. And are you ready for this part? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> years later. Years later. Uh, some folks from Montagnac, Bruce Rudlow, Diane Castle, who was a schoolteacher, and her uh, and her then husband Dan Castle were into scuba diving. And they were scuba diving up there off of Eagle harbor and they saw a huge ship's anchor tangled in the ribs of an old vessel now the anchor they saw was was huge and was uh, heavy and certainly not of that vintage but the anchor chain was tangled in the ribs of an of a a sailing vessel which evidently had gone down there sometime. They managed to salvage that anchor. They got floats on it. They brought it to the surface. And that is the anchor that sits out in front of the museum right now. Oh, my gosh. Really? That's yeah. awesome.
0: Wow. Wow, that's incredible. I always
2: that's wondered about amazing. that, actually. Well, the only connection that anchor has to Antonagan is that it was tangled in the wreckage and ribs of the George W. Ford that went down uh, off of Eagle Harbor. Um
0: that's that's very interesting. That's awesome. All sorts, of,
2: all sorts of little oddities and and things you find out about Ontonagon. If you look here, ask questions and poke around. I've been I've been a student of Ontonagon history now for over sixty years, and I've accumulated a lot of this stuff in my head. It'll probably die with me, although I've written several. I've written five books on local history, and of course you've read them all, haven't you? <laughs> I was going to ask, are those
0: Published anywhere? Like, are they in the just at the museum? Probably museum and like maybe the library in Ontonagon.
2: Anywhere else you can get them? Um, this land the Ontonagon, which is actually um the lectures that I gave to my seventh grade students in a course on local history, and that is available at the Ontonagon <laughs> Museum. Okay, that is available. It's a large book, uh, 211, 212 pages, plus the index. And I got a lot of photographs with it. Uh, Another book I wrote was The River and the Land, which is basically a summary of Ontonagon County history. I uh, wrote a history of the Victoria Mine, which uh, has been reissued. That's also available at the Historical Society Museum um hmm i forget after oh yes i almost forgot a little book called supernatural tales and hauntings all right which is also available in limited quantities uh from the answer all right
0: that is awesome. Well, that's. I mean, we really do appreciate you coming and talking to us. Uh, I was glad. And by the
2: way, and by the way, I don't get a dime for these books. I don't. <laughs> okay. I donate manuscripts to the historical society years ago for their uh, profit.
0: Okay. Wow. Because we really want. I mean, obviously, us being from Montagnac and we don't know. I mean, even a sixteenth of the information that you know, but always hearing about it is is incredible. And that's kind of what we're doing here: is just letting our listeners kind of understand the history of Antigon, whether it's, you know, quote unquote hauntings <laughs> or all these yeah. wonderful stories that you've told us. I mean, it's nice getting that information out there to people that might not know about it.
2: Well, if you have any questions or if you want to discuss any other facets of Ontonoggin
0: history. Well, if we have questions, we know where to go. Okay. Well, have a good night, Bruce. Thanks again for coming
2: on. Good evening. And don't let the entities haunt you.
0: Well, failures, how about that for an interview? Hope you guys did enjoy that, though. Bruce Johansson. Uh, it was very fun to do that with him. Great to hear all those stories, especially knowing that all of those are, well, tied into Ontonagon. But that's going to do it for episode 27. I hope you enjoyed your Halloween. You were safe. You didn't get any fentanyl in your, well, in your Snickers. But next week you have something to look forward to we are going to do a full story recap of the Edmund Fitzgerald so there's probably going to be some things that you didn't know about that you will learn from us we're going to do some research and uh, yeah it's going to be a fun conversation but have a great week and I'll see you in the next one
4: dude I turned I I turned thanks for listening to failure
3: I saw, a dude, there was a dude working fucking pills in the back room one time.
5: Thanks for listening to failure
0: at its finest hour.
4: Oh yeah, side story. Remember when we drug all the equipment out of the basketball court behind that place and blew the lid off the town?
5: Thanks for listening to failure at
0: its finest hour. Penguin! It was Penguin! nice another perfect round thanks for listening to failure at its finest
5: hour
0: distinctively remember getting thrown to the ground when that first one blew up thanks for
5: listening